This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor of Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're gonna have a great show. I'm broadcasting back from Wharton's campus. I've got my guest in the studio, a former colleague uh, and friend. We're going to talk about some of his views on what's going on in emerging markets in India in particular. Uh, but Professor, uh, you've been talking about, uh, at last week, we had a very interesting conversation on what are all these people doing working? Uh, and we had a, another blockbuster number here. Right, exactly. Uh, and and this just makes the puzzle even more let's let's repeat what there is uh, what there was uh first six months of the year we uh there was a 2.7 million increase in workers and yet gdp went down um it is uh, a, 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 a you know what what how can that happen well it, it can happen in a number of ways um if 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 all the data is right, it is an unprecedented drop in productivity that we have never seen before. Now, the official number in the first quarter was minus 7.3. We are uh, we are going to get on Tuesday uh, the first non-farm product, uh, productivity number for the second quarter. It's it's estimated minus four and a half. I think it's going to be even more negative like than that. Even if it's a minus four and a half. Those are two consecutive quarters of drops that are uh, we have never seen before. Minus 7.3, by the way, was the biggest in 75 years, and it was followed by a big increase in productivity the next quarter. Now we're having another unprecedented. What is happening here? What? Uh, it, why isn't this being discussed more? Um, some people are noting it, but uh, how can we have all these workers with a decline in GDP? Is GDP wrong? Is it really going up? Is the hours worked wrong? They're way overestimating. By the way, let me say that the details of today's blockbuster uh, uh, non-farm payrolls report, and boy, 528,000 revision upward of the previous month, double expectations. Um, uh, and I'll, this is what caught my attention. Average hours worked. Um was revised upward for the month of June. Now, why is that important? Is that makes this productivity problem even more, more puzzling. Uh, we're working even more hours and getting less GDP. Don't forget, June is second quarter. We got second quarter. And they uh, it's in, and all, already hours worked for this quarter. So something is very strange and very important data that, to my knowledge, no one has really confronted and, and, you know, maybe because they think, oh, this is just some macroeconomic puzzle, but productivity and GDP are two of the most important variables you have in the economy. And how can we reconcile that? Notwithstanding, uh, the, the, the reaction of the market today is as expected, uh, big jump in yields, big jump in expectations. It looks like what I thought I was going to take the under on that 250. No, it doesn't look like uh, things are deteriorating uh, rapidly. They seem to be bouncing back. Um, and that means, uh, but don't forget, we're, we're going to get another employment report since it is until September that we have the uh, FOMC. So we'll see what happens. And there's more reports, but that. You know, clearly uh, we're going to have a, another at least 50 basis point too early to say exactly what it is. Now, on, on Wednesday, on uh, the 10th, we have the CPI. Overall, it's going to be uh, only two tenths because of the tremendous drop in energy prices. 
but the core rate is expected five tenths. Let's see. I still forward-looking prices and flexible sectors have been holding their own or declining. A lot has been, you know, mentioned uh, that Elon Musk had mentioned in, uh, that that over half of the material costs of what goes into his Tesla is now declining for the first time uh, since the pandemic began. Um, so we have, to, uh, but, but we have rising wage costs. Wages are lagged. They should be going up. Um, uh, and, and we do see them, by the way, wages did go up more than expected. Uh, that didn't surprise me at all. So there's pressure on the service sector side. All that said, we have earnings from what up almost seventy five percent of the S and P's not bad. The expectations were down. Um, the beats are certainly not what they were last year, which were the biggest in history in terms of expectation. They're down to more normal sizes, so we have some warnings. But I think the good rally that we saw in July and even holding up in early August is these earnings are not bad as we had uh, predicted. So, Professor, reflecting back on, you know, a week later after a conversation with Don Cohn last week, as you think about the Fed narrative, what you've heard so far from the Fed speakers first coming out since uh, the decision is people seem to be saying uh, you've been taking sort of dovish pivot. The uh, the don't yeah. the Cohn narrative was a hawkish, you know, continued hawkish. Yeah. And you're hearing these Fed speakers say we got to keep going. Do you think the Fed can come to your view, or do you think they're going to stick with this? We got well, to get to three and a half, four. You know, if they look at wages and employment, they're going to remain super hawkish. If they look at, you know, CPI with its backward looking, they're going to be pretty hawkish. If they look at sensitive commodity prices, they're going to come down. Now, we've talked about the money supply a 0.8% increase since the first of the year, the biggest slowdown in history, or at least since the Great Depression of the 1930s, um, in terms of, uh, of a slowdown in money. Um, uh, you know, my, my preference is that they try to, uh, that they ease off. Um, but, but with this employment report, there's really no reason for them to ease off. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, uh, unless we get some really uh, uh, low CPIs, we're going to have we have an inverted curve. We're going to have a dovish Fed. But again, how do we have negative GDP? What, what that that puzzle is hangs over everything that I think about. Uh, why do we have negative GDP with now another half million? So you add that to two point seven. By the way, the estimates for this quarter. If you look at either the GDP now or you look at my, uh, you know, S&P Global, is 1%. Well, you know, when you have the first month of this quarter, you have a half a million employed with an increase in hours worked. How do you So even in the third quarter, we're getting that puzzle. How do you get only 1% GDP? Something is very amiss. Um, and... Um, uh, I'm just saying we we just don't understand it, um, or I've not seen any data on it, and uh, I am pretty shocked that the the Fed. No one seems to care so much. They're just looking at inflation and how hawkish the Fed will be, and not saying just a minute, guys. There's no consistency with negative GDP and blockbuster gains in employment. Um, and uh, that means a lot for wages and means a lot for standard of living. Productivity is, you know, that 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 number. I wish we had more clarity on that um, before we get. By the way, we still have to hype because, you know, it is in it is in a lot of the data. I'm not saying we shouldn't hype more. Um, I'm just saying when I look at the money supply flatten out the way it is, I get very, very cautious about what might Come into the future, but certainly today uh, is saying that um, uh, employment seems to be strong, and the Fed is going to probably go 50 to 75. But there's still, you know, six weeks left before they have to uh, act. In the meantime, 
um, uh, you know, today for the first time, uh, growth stocks, because of the rise in rates, have lagged value stocks. And because of the fact that, hey, if we're not having a recession, you want to go in, those value stocks are more sensitive to that. This is generally the pivot. So, you know, basically you're, you're going to get value doing better when we get stronger data means higher rates and it means less probability of recession. When you get uh, weaker data, obviously the reverse is concerned. We have quite a rally of growth versus value, a big retracement, but of, 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 of uh, not half, but a big retracement. We had a reversal today. We'll see if, if that uh, reversal continues in terms of uh, the oncoming data, looking at productivity next week, and then, of course, Wednesday, the CPI, and then Thursday, uh, the wholesale price index. Professor, uh, what's your view on uh, inflation? Do you think, uh, in light of today's uh, employment numbers, are we following the Philip curves here? Is it the next print? Is it going to be even uh, higher? No, I mean, I, my feeling is when I look at the sensitive commodity indicators, then you look at oil. I mean, oil is up a bit today, but you know, WTI is 89. I mean, that's what is that? The level before the invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, we we have the commodity indexes down dramatically now. Of course, since the pandemic, they were up 40 to 50 percent. They've come down 15, 20. We have housing prices from you know. The indexes are very lagged, but but on the ground you hear that people are are getting now homes below asking prices for the first time since the pandemic. Yeah. So uh, again, uh, uh, if you look at official statistics, inflation will still be in. Um, if you look at the sensitive commodities and housing and freight and cargo rates and Baltic dry goods rates and shipping rates and food rates even, uh, you say the inflation uh, has has really halted. I like to look at those forward-looking rates um, and uh, tell the Fed to be careful about overdoing it because they're not going to kill wage inflation with the shortages that we have. You kill wage inflation, you're, you're really going to kill the economy because then you're going to have to bring down goods even more. Um, and uh, I don't know whether they don't forget wages are falling way behind and uh, to kill it would actually lower standards of living, uh, even though people are employed. So the Fed, uh, you know, again, um, uh, today was a surprise. Let's see how the data comes. I'm still worried the, that the biggest threat to the economy is an over tightening of the Fed. If you ask me what the risk right now is still the Fed is going to look at this and say, hey, we're going to go 75, they're going to look at backward-looking CPIs and go 50-50, and they're going to bring the, you know, the December rate instead of 359, which is what the uh, futures are right now. When you take a look at the January 23 futures for December of, of that month, um, they're going to bring it to four. I think that's too high, and I've been saying for months, years, that their notion of the uh, neutral rate is too high. The neutral rate is somewhere between, uh, you know, one and one and a half percent, under two percent inflation or um, between minus one percent and zero. So right now, when you take a look at the Fed funds rate at 233, all right, now it's true. And how much is forward inflation um, year over year? We have a nine percent. It looks still negative. But forward looking on sensitive commodities, it's not very negative at all. Um, and, and that's the difference. Yeah. Backward-looking versus forward-looking uh, rates of inflation are um, are very different right now. Yeah, and I would just share my opinion with you, Professor. I think when it, people think of inflation, they sometimes forget that it's a ratio. It's a year-on-year -year number. So in order for the ratio to go up, uh, the numerator is already going up, but the it has to go up at a faster pace than the denominator. And the denominator is the last year's value. Last year, this time uh, around, in inflation numbers were already going up. They were starting to you know, go up in middle 2021. So maybe the next print would be a little higher, but every higher print forces the ratio 
that the numerator of the ratio increases at a faster pace and outperforms its denominator. So the math is simply, you know, uh, not working in favor for the inflation to continue to accelerate. That's but, at least how I think about it. But why should we look at year over year? That's a good over point. past year, we're already looking one month in the past on, a, on an index that has lags in it. Uh, and then we're comparing it with a year ago. When if you're forward looking, which is what the Fed would be, you're going to get much lower inflation numbers. Housing is one of the major factors in the CPI. However, because of the way they calculated, they've underestimated it. There's a catch up over 12 months. But as I say, on the ground prices and even rentals, by the way are beginning to moderate dramatically. On the ground, prices are probably yep. declining for real estate after bumping up 40%. Um, uh, on the ground, rentals are moderating. I'm not saying they're going down. They're up from a year ago, but from last month, you're beginning to be able to, people in the business say all of a sudden we're, you're getting some moderation. So I, I think year over year, you're perfectly right about the way you're describing it, but is that the way the Fed should look at the forward-looking rate, which is what's 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 happened has happened. Uh, you got to be concerned about what uh, uh, you know what is happening forward, and that's uh, that's my that's my point. And still, forward rates are um, forward inflation rates look to me on an unlagged index, not the lagged index that is the CPI, but an unlagged index are very low right now. Professor, so, um, always great to get uh, some comments from you to start the show. Uh, thank you. It will be interesting as we very much. navigate we'll, this puzzle. We'll, we'll, we'll look at these numbers uh, next week. Thank you, Professor. Well, we're going to turn the conversation to my guest in the studio. We have Gaurav Sinha, who was the the former head of research at Standard & Poor's. He was my colleague at Wisdom Tree as one of our asset allocation strategists. Came from, uh, before I met Gaurav, was, was at Windhaven, one of the early ETF model portfolio managers, one of the sharpest quants I know. <laughs> Gaurav, welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Philadelphia. Thanks for coming to the studio. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for your kind words, and it's an absolute pleasure to be back on your show. So we're going to talk a little bit about India, but um, give, and you just came back from a trip to India. I know you. this is uh, an area of the market. You have a lot of views. Any other comments you wanted? You, you heard the professor kick off on the, the productivity puzzle now. Anything you want to say broadly before we dive into India? No, I think uh, I 100% agree with Professor, um, and it's always uh, nice to hear his thoughts. Uh, what puzzles me a little bit is uh, why is good news uh, bad news for the markets? You know, I think markets are down, and that's, in my personal opinion, a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction. I understand that the rates may be going up, uh, but there is still at least two inflation prints that will come in before uh, the September you know decision happens. Um, so it remains to be seen, but uh, I think I think uh, this uh, market going down immediately. I think it's a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction. That's that, those are my two cents on uh, you know previous conversation. <laughs> you know, it's it's tricky because it, it's like I, I try to get to, if the Fed follows Siegel, you could say we're in good shape. <laughs> but if they they seem they didn't follow him when he was hawkish, and now they're not seeming to follow him as he pivots dovish. And so if the Fed sticks with this inflation is too hot narrative, you know, they over tighten you into a bigger recession than possible. So that that's the worry, I think, if I if I have a worry. No, today. I understand. I understand that, Jeremy. But that's sort of, you know, that, that, that's sort of preempting the problem. So maybe markets are, you know, uh, preempting that and they should, you know, sort of uh, cross that bridge when it comes. That's that's how I think about it. <laughs> So let's. Uh, why do you like India so much? Give us your. Uh, what's your, you, you think? There's so much going on in the world. We have China growing in emerging markets over the last decade, up to you know it was approaching forty percent of emerging market indexes. Um, now it's come back. Obviously, the big tech has come off, and, and now we have this extra tension going on in Asia. We can we'll talk about that a little bit more. But give us your thesis on India. 
what a great day to be talking about emerging markets here when we all we know that uh, rates would be going up and dollar would be rallying so it may not be one of the best news for em but i think this also uh, demands from em investors to differentiate and not just be you know pure index investors when it comes to emerging markets because as i've been saying for long em is not one monolithic block there are different shades in em and you need to identify good from the bad uh, i just happened to be back from uh, india a big a long india trip of four and a half months uh, i spent a lot of time with boots on the ground and uh, there is just immense you know a uh, uh, energy sort of potential energy uh, that's stored in india and i think a lot of that is now turning into kinetic energy at a micro economy level and um, <clears throat> these changes uh, are often unappreciated in my opinion uh, by global investors so let's rewind our clocks a little bit back uh, and i'll be you know uh, referring to politics every now and then because politics and economies are often so intertwined uh, 2014 was a critical year for indian markets and indian economy because after almost 30 years three decades this was the first time when a single political party bjp was given a clean mandate by indian voters in the federal elections uh for for people for your listeners here in the us uh, <clears throat> unlike the us system indian political system is very fragmented and typically a bunch of different political parties would come together and form a coalition government so therefore for years um there was a policy paralysis in india because when you have a coalition governments uh, then uh, it's hard to take decision you would end up upsetting one constituency of one political party and no decisions are typically taken but 2014 a single party got the mandate and prime minister modi who continues to be the current prime minister of india comes to power at that time india was the 10th largest economy next 8 years india grows at about 40% Uh, gdp growth uh, now that's that's the only china uh, out of all bigger economies grew faster than india in those 8 years so that's a phenomenal growth rate in 2020 it superseded united kingdom to become the fifth largest economy now this is pretty significant because as you know uh, the british ruled india for 90 years so for india crossing its former uh, colonial masters was uh, pretty you know a symbolic in nature <laughs> um today indian markets are fourth biggest fourth largest markets in the world right behind us china japan and india in that order uh, the startup scene in india is immense it is the th- it has it is the third largest center for unicorns uh, that is startups with 1 billion dollar valuation right after us and china um imf thinks that next 5 to 7 years india would be growing at 8% so and it'll be a 5 trillion dollar economy uh, pretty soon in in next decade so there are a lot of things happening i can carry into the details at a micro level macro level uh, but that's where we are right now with india story How do we so as you think about there's the local investors going to India there's foreign investors going into India uh how do you think about properly sizing if you're an emerging market investor how much should they be where are they today Let, let's talk about what is India's allocation in a traditional benchmark uh i i think that anybody who is a growth investor is uh, looking for a growth oriented portfolio Uh, they definitely need to pay much more attention to india than what the current market cap of india is in a em index um now that could be 5% for somebody that could be 10% for somebody uh, i am more in the favor of 10% uh, but you know if you really want to focus if you look at global asset allocation it's hard to identify spots where growth is happening at a level of what's happening in india and that should answer your question so at least 10% uh for any growth investor in my mind so here's let's give some data on where is the msci emerging markets index for people so right now uh, i'm showing the largest allocation uh 630 mid year in emerging markets was 35% in china then it had 
14% in Taiwan. So you could say China, yeah. Taiwan is half of the MSCI so true. Emerging Markets Index. And uh, there's a huge conflict going on in China yeah. and Taiwan right as we speak. They're doing yeah. military drills. Then you have India, uh, which has surpassed South Korea. For a while, Korea was up there. I mean, obviously, Samsung being big. But you now have India showing, I, I show 12.7%. So it's a little bit over double digits in the broad EM, um, but you're saying for a growth investor. When I say 10%, I mean 10% of your whole portfolio. Right. So not you know, for the EM portfolio. So broad EM is is probably, if you look in, at a all country world index, that's probably 10% emerging markets generally. So you're, yes. you're on the view yes. that India could justify a 10% in a total portfolio. Well, if the IMF says that from around two and a half trillion dollar economy, it's going to be $5 trillion economy in five years, then uh, that itself speaks volume about what the weight of India should be in your portfolio. So uh, I'm not uh, an outlier in that sense. Now, does <clears throat> does that get reflected in higher valuations in India? It's like when you compare the multiples of India, this is one of the things that it, it has... It reflects that growth. They tend to be higher multiple stocks. That's true. Uh, the m multiples in India are a little bit higher and uh, compared to the overall EM market. But that's also reflective of what investors are willing to pay for Indian stocks. And if the if the market justifies that with growth, to my mind, uh, valuations should always be looked with what sort of a growth potential there is in that basket. And uh, I mean, I know that you guys have a great product, EPI which uh, uh, is uh, weighted by earnings. So there are ways to sort of tackle the valuation problem. Uh, look at profitable companies, uh, weight them by their profit, net earnings, instead of weighting by market cap. And therefore, you bring immediately valuations down because you're focusing on earnings and not the price, price uh, you know, uh, market cap of those stocks. Um, so talk a little bit about more of those local dynamics. What tell, Give us some of Absolutely. your take. Absolutely. So allow me a few minutes to, Jeremy, to walk you through uh, the micro and the macro changes that have been happening. So again, going back to 2014, um, India is a very unique economy in a sense that in 2014, about 85% of its economy was in informal sector. And uh, almost 500 million people were employed by this informal sector. Now, when we in the Western world, you know, think about all typical inflation, unemployment and Philip curve, all of that is modeled on formal economy. So oftentimes we think that, oh, inflation is going up, dollar is getting stronger. So let's dump EM, let's dump India. But that to an extent is true. But you also got to look that that's that's on the formal economy side, which accounted for 15% in 2014. 85% of India's economy was informal. In the informal sector, cash is king. So essentially, 80% of transactions by uh, value and 98% by volume were all in cash. And most of it was untracked and often untaxed. So there was a big shadow economy uh, in parallel to two and a half trillion dollar formal economy of India that was running. So that was one big problem that India had to tackle at a micro front. Uh, I'll come to the macro a little later. So <clears throat> what did uh, Modi do since uh, 2014? They had three pronged, uh, you know, uh, approach to tackle this problem. Step number one, they started a big project for issuing a unique identification number uh, similar to social security number here in the US uh, based on biometric. Now, authentication is could be at three levels. You have a username and based on the username, you get a unique number. Then in level two, you can add a password or some sort of a unique code, username plus password, and you get a unique number. Level third, which is the most stringent one, is a biometric, which is basically your retina and fingerprint scan. Even in the Western world, there's no biometric-based Such a leapfrog in technology. You Absolutely. get that all the time. That, Absolutely. That, and the... I, coming from India, I'm still amazed that a country with so many far-flung villages from its remote towns in the mountains of Himalayas to the coastal town and its southern tip, in last eight years, almost 100% of India's population has this EYD now. Everybody has it. It's The project is done. It's done. 
it, the, uh, the only new UIDs that are being issued are for the new babies that are, be born, that are being born. <laughs> and you can open like a bank account with your finger. That's, that's, the level, that's the step number two. So step number one was basically <clears throat> having this uh, unique identification system. Step number two was a big banking reach. Um, all the state banks were mandated to go out uh, with their local branches and local provinces and towns to convince people to open bank accounts. And at the same time, people were incentivized to put their money by giving them free life and health insurances. So as a result, uh, almost 350 million new bank accounts have been opened in last eight years, which is the entire population of the U.S., um, so these many people came under the formal banking system. And uh, like you mentioned, you know, opening a bank account with a mobile phone, smartphones are omnipresent in India. Everybody has a smartphone, maybe not an Apple iPhone, but a simple cheap version in villages is very, you know, common. So you can open a bank account by using your unique identification number and going on to bank's website. It's as easy as just logging into bank's website, putting in your unique identification number, and with a swipe of a thumb, you open a bank account. And you don't have to deposit anything. If you have money, deposit. Otherwise, whatever little amount you have. This idea of going from the, the informal to the formal economy is, was a big one. Right? They, they had, and you're hearing a lot about central bank digital currencies. Yes. They, and, and the move to go away hmm. from cash. You know, you've had uh, the question is, what do you use cash for? And, and I think Modi was taking the view, the people who have cash are this informal economy. We want it in the banking system. And they outlawed the use of high rupee notes, right? <laughs> and so what, what was the effect of that? I think you're referring to demonetization. Um, the, the, the move of demonetization was a little controversial move. Uh, it definitely disrupted the economy for a quarter or two quarters. Uh, but... It is not very clear if, in retrospection, that move really helped India in moving away from a cash society to cashless society. That transition is definitely happening and is accelerating, uh, but not because of demonetization. It's happening because of some of the changes that I just mentioned to you. Step one was UID, unique identification system. Step two was this banking, you know, and linking your UID to the bank. And let me just explain the step three, which was the last step. This was setting up a digital vault. It's called India Stack, which stores your UID, your mobile number and your bank account. So it links the three, you know, identities and forms a trinity. So as a result, anything that an individual does in a micro economy, paying your taxes, you know, paying your bills, buying something uh, through uh, e-commerce, all of that can be easily tracked, audited Tax evasion becomes much harder for an individual interacting with economy is much more efficient and much more faster. I think these processes have expedited cashless society much you know, more than a one move of demonetization. Demonetization did help, uh, but at what cost? It was a huge disruption at the same time. So there, at a cost-benefit analysis, I think um, some of the natural organic changes because of these steps that I mentioned uh, are, are much more valuable than uh, the, the you know, demonetization. So this was the micro story. You're listening to Behind the Markets. What is the macro story? What are the big factors you think impacting the, the overall picture? That's a great point, Jair. So we just uh, mentioned upon the micro changes and how micro economy is being rewired. On the macro front, uh, let, me, let me, you know, explain it through a little bit of a uh, paradox. Uh, what were the challenges faced by macro economy in India? Uh, if you think of, you know, Indian society, uh, Currently, around 15 to 20 percent of global market cap is being run by Indian origin CEOs. But when you think of Indian companies, there aren't many which can compete or that come to your mind right away as global names, you know, something similar to Alphabet or Microsoft or Amazons. So that's a little bit of a paradox to me that if Indians can go out and head some of the biggest companies in the world, whether Alphabet, IBM and you name what, um, why don't Indian companies do that well? And I think the answer to that lies because India, because of its system, had a very fragmented market markets and there was a lot of push against economy of scale. What I mean by that is, before 2017, 
बिफोर ट्वेंटी सेवेंटीन ऑल द डिफरेंट स्टेट्स इन इंडिया हैड देयर ओन डिफरेंट टैक्सेशन रूल्स सो इफ यू आर अ मैन्युफैक्चरर इन योर होम स्टेट यू गेट योर यू नो रॉ प्रोडक्ट्स फ्रॉम अ स्टेट ए यू मैन्युफैक्चर इन योर स्टेट एंड यू सेल इन स्टेट सी यू हैव टू कीप अ ट्रैक ऑफ ऑल दीज थ्री डिफरेंट टैक्सेशन रूल्स फ्रॉम डिफरेंट स्टेट्स एंड नॉट इवन स्टेट्स डिफरेंट सिटीज विद इन दो स्टेट सो वॉट यू डू यू जस्ट रिमेन कन्फाइंड इन योर ओन होम स्टेट इन योर होम टाउन और होम प्रोवेंस other stat let me quote that stat to you uh, if you track a 5 year old company that has 100 employees in us and in india so company a in us company b in india a 5 year old company with 100 employees over next 35 years a company in us had 1840 employees on an average in india the same company had around 140 so a us company went from 100 employees to 800 employees a indian company went from 100 employees to 140 employees and why is that so because the rules in india are such that the moment you become big a whole rule book is thrown at you so what do you do as an entrepreneur the moment you have 95 employees you know that you will be hit with a rule book when you have 100 employees so you spin off your company you start a new company on your wife's name you know you start a new company on your brother's name or maybe on your driver's name so no individual company in itself becomes big and therefore there is a lot of resistance against an economy of scale and no company is able to compete in the global markets so how did they tackle that they tackled that by putting in what is called as gst goods and services tax which unifies all the 28 indian states and eight union territories and brings them on a single taxation scheme so no matter where you go in india right now you pay same tax whether you are in one state another state or some different state so gone are those days when different taxes second they also launched what is called as pli production linked incentives where all those historical rules that were thrown at you as you became bigger as your company became bigger that's gone and in fact you get uh, different kinds of subsidies and help from government uh, if you continue to grow so i think this is gonna tremendously change uh, you know the way indian companies operate and instead of having 10000 small companies over next few years uh, this creates an environment where individual companies get bigger and bigger and they acquire an economy of scale and you know they they can compete with global markets so those are some of the macro changes uh, at a very high level that have been done and i think that that's going to help uh, markets a lot indian companies a lot You you're telling me uh, there's a parallel between <clears throat> Japan in the 1970s and India today. Uh in Japan for our listeners in the 1970s, you know, the US had these high inflation problems. You, you, we were just looking up at the returns uh and and the US did about 4.5% a year uh is the returns of the MSCI USA index. Japan did about 12.7 a year for the 1970s right before it had the massive 1980s where it did 22% a year for a decade um the US had a pretty good 1980s did 17% a year for a decade but what's the story why is J- why is india like japan during this this huge boom of the 70s and 80s so there's a asset management firm in india called marcellus they have done a fabulous comparison of uh, comparing um, japan in 70s versus what india is right now and the the current global macroeconomic situation versus what the global macroeconomic situation was in 70s so if you think about you know the japanese miracle that happened most of it happened through the decades of 70s prior to that japan was mostly into heavy industries and shipping but in 70s what happened was that us was kind of going through its own internal sort of you know turmoil from all these uh, civil rights movement and uh, anti vietnam war uh, protests at the same time uh, the arab israel war happened so there was a big oil shock that happened at a time when us was in its own internal turmoil and as a result oil prices move up 3 to 4x and for the whole throughout 70s like you mentioned uh, us markets were mostly flat bond deals were going up but in the same time japanese market had phenomenal returns why because in the early 70s japan had it's manufacturing as a 50% of its total economy when the oil shock came in there was a lot of demand for creating lighter automobiles and you know fuel efficient vehicles so japan was able to use its uh, its uh, existing framework in manufacturing pivot away from heavy manufacturing 
into what we know Japan today for, which is basically fuel-efficient cars, uh, electronics, and all of that miracle happened in 70s. So now coming back to India, uh, 50% of India's economy is service sector. And right now what we are going through is a massive uh, COVID-related labor shortage, uh, you know, shock. I just came back from India and uh, when I had a stopover in London, I saw that almost one in four flights were getting cancelled. Because there are no, you know, nobody to work, no pilots, no air staff and no, you know, ground staff. So there's a massive dearth of labor shortage that's happening. And if India can use its service sector, which is 50% of its current economy and, uh, you know, help Western world with the sort of, uh, you know, labor shortages, there's immense opportunity there. If the global service sector is $15 trillion, so even if one-tenth of that goes to India, not because jobs are shipped to India because, you know, it's a cheaper destination, but because there are not many people in the Western world to work anyways. So somebody has to work for them. So even if one-tenth of that goes to India over a period of next 5-10 years, we're talking about $1.5 trillion moving to India. I mean, this is, we, we started talking about the beginning of the show, the productivity yeah. conundrum, people working from home. But it also means if you're working from home, you could be working from home anywhere in the world. And as a U.S. company, you could say, yeah. I've got people getting closer to a 24-hour production cycle because they're on the other side of the world. You've got to figure out how you coordinate and pass and hand things off. But there can be synergies. Yeah, of course. In that and environment. As these new sectors like renewables emerge and, you know, where else is world going to find like uh, thousands and thousands of engineers? India has a huge talent pool. You were an engineer. You went to the <laughs> best school in India. Yes, that was my former religion. Uh, I grew up as an engineer, um, but now I am a finance guy. So, yeah. <laughs> Financial engineer. Financial engineer. Yes, 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 yes. Um, uh, let me hint upon one another very interesting major trend that I saw in this trip, Jeremy, that's happening in India. And that's about financialization of uh, illiquid assets in India into regular financial markets. So if you look at SEBI's, which is market regulator in India, and RBI's data, and if you collect you know, some of the interesting data they publish, you will see that during the first quarter this year, ending in March, almost $80 billion has been uh, uh, you know, um, dumped by Indian investors, not foreign investors, Indian households like mom and pop, you know, basically investors into financial packaged products, mutual funds, ETFs, etc, etc. I'm not talking of bank deposits here. Uh, so this replaces actually all the global outflows from foreign portfolio investors. So whatever went away from foreign portfolio investors was actually replenished by Indian investors. And what is happening in India is it's also a very young country. And being young means being more in line with what's happening globally and more aspirational. So a lot of traditional wealth in India, which was uh, trapped in sort of illiquid assets like uh, gold jewelry, coins, uh, even, you know, old houses. There is a huge trend of people selling that, monetizing that, and then putting that into financial markets. I think that's only going to continue to accelerate. Uh, according to some estimates, it's hard to estimate, but according to some estimates, the total household wealth in India is three to three and a half times of its GDP. So that's around $10 trillion. So again, even if one-tenth of that flows back into financial markets, uh, it's again $1 trillion that will be coming to Indian financial markets. So that again justifies a valuation question earlier, you know, in our show today. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit more about how they invest if we have time. But given so much of the world today is focused on politics, geopolitics, <laughs> you've got uh, President Biden facing a tough midterm election series. Um, you've got the, the China politics and you have Xi facing his election cycle uh, later this year. Talk about Modi. Talk about the election cycle in India. How popular is Modi today? He's come in very business friendly, uh, is is the narrative. Uh, and and so talk about Modi's local politics uh, in the in the cycle there. Well, there are there are you know more uh, sort of uh, controversial aspects as well as more uh, you know what we may call as economically right aspects. Uh, we spoke about the economy, and I think. This government realizes that for India to grow, it has to satisfy the needs of its younger population. And they are looking for jobs. They are looking for, you know, growth. They are looking for money. So how do you make money? Uh, so 
a lot of good is happening in that direction definitely <clears throat> but uh, india is a very politically charged country just like the us and uh, there is a big uh, sort of uh, binary between uh, people who like modi and who don't like modi so that happens in any democracy um the people who don't like modi are often not very happy with his uh, socio economic policies and you know uh, treatment of uh, certain uh, section of society minorities etc etc uh it's all debatable uh, some of it could be because uh, of local politics and uh, his opposition realizes that they cannot take modi down on economic growth that's happening so how else do you take him down then you go to social factors and you start you know uh making stories there and maybe there is some truth i don't know but as an investor i think the economic story in india is is definitely on the right track uh you mentioned geopolitics and what's happening in uh, taiwan and you know us coming in i think in that perspective also india is very sweetly positioned uh, think about the country that can dial up washington dc as well as dial up moscow and speak to the both countries at the same time there are very few countries who can do that and india is actually one of them because of its legacy reason it had its connection with soviet you know uh, the former soviet union uh, the us india ties started warming up in early 2000s and now it's more in the us camp so it's very sweetly positioned in terms of geopolitics as well i haven't seen a lot of backlash for them buying cheap russian oil <laughs> that goes you know volumes in uh, speaking uh, as to uh, how favorably india has looked in washington dc but let me also say that one point over there from an indian side uh india is starting this you know this russian oil from a very low base uh even as of today europe buys way way more than what india does from russia in terms of its oil purchases so it's starting from a low base but nevertheless dc has been quite accommodative of that and they they want to keep india in their camp so so tell us about when the next cycle for modi is when when he face reelection so the election cycle in india is a 5 year cycle uh one advantage of having a clean mandate like i said in the very beginning of our show is that modi is fixed for 5 years so the last election happened in 2019 there's no way the government will fall before 2024 uh prior to modi there was no guarantee that the government will continue for 5 years because some coalition party would get upset and they will withdraw their supports so every 2 years you will have election and these are very expensive elections uh, most expensive in fact more expensive the last election in year 2019 was more expensive than the us federal election which is the you know by far the uh, most expensive election in the world so india superseded that uh the next election will happen in 2024 as i was coming back to the states uh there was a very recent poll published by a local news channel uh, a reliable local news channel that does this every couple of years and they predicted that if elections were to happen uh today modi will come back to power in fact with even stronger majority than last year and that did not surprise me at all all of my friends and relatives and you know extended family and everybody they may they might have slight differences here and there but they realize that uh, he's doing a lot of right things are there any new policies you think that are positive for the economy any other new things that that have gone under the radar people haven't been talking about well i think there's a major push for monetizing government assets uh, they just completed a sale of air india which was a loss making entity for the government now it's being run by tatas the privatization uh, the state owned pri- companies exactly. becoming more efficient once they leave full state ownership that's the theme i talk about it with some tree a lot is you don't want just things that are trying to a little bit more inefficient in government hands. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a big trend that's happening. These things are very political by the way. You know, there are state unions and there are employee unions and political constituencies, but one advantage of being a strong leader and having a strong mandate is that he's able to push these things Uh, although at his own pace uh, investors are always ever demanding they'll want it to be faster faster and faster but uh, you know the thing these things are happening in in terms of um you know you you came you did your your latest stint at S&P you guys did a lot of work on indexing um what's that investment environment like in India what are people you, you talked a little bit about people f- going into more financial assets 
What's the investment climate like for for the local investor in India? So from a product perspective, Jeremy, I think passive investing in India is still decades behind what it is in US. Uh, even for a plain exposure to you know, let's say Nifty Fifty or Bombay Stock Exchange, uh, people still use mostly active products and they pay much higher fee for that. And so therefore, I see that passive is starting from a very low base in India. uh you don't have to be sort of super innovative like the way you have to be in us if you want to give a s&p 500 exposure uh to to you know sell your product and still be profitable so and like i mentioned about the financialization of illiquid assets i think this trend of more and more money coming in domestic money coming in markets will you know only accelerate uh if uh, 10 trillion dollar one tenth of that is financialized 1 trillion dollars based over next 5 to 10 years uh there's immense opportunity in terms of convincing new investors that you get a same beta exposure at much more cheaper prices in fact you get smart beta <laughs> if you build your product right if you build your product the wisdom tree way um and and uh, make a lot of money Your 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 Spiva when when your S and P you had uh, been a, a co-author of a, a report called the Spiva Scorecard. It compared active versus passive. Um, it's a it's a great look across uh, the fund industry. We're we're going to be quoting um, one of the Spiva numbers in our sixth edition of Stocks for Long Run coming out in September. Uh, I just pulled up the chart that showed for all large cap funds the twenty year number. For percentage of equity funds underperforming the benchmarks, ninety-four percent of benchmarks, Gaurav. Wow, no, ninety-four I, funds percent of all the funds underperformed over twenty years. That's absolutely right. And if you look, if you think of it in a probability, uh, probabilistic sense, uh, probability of flipping a coin, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's even less than you know fifty uh, percent. So in that sense, it's it's uh, it's really hard to beat an index. We're in our final few moments of the show. Uh, anything about India you think we haven't covered that just quickly uh, that you would you would say? Yeah, I think today is a great day to be talking about one more thing that I want to speak about. You know, in employment numbers just came out, and people are worried the dollar is gonna get, gonna get stronger and that will put a downward pressure on emerging markets. But like I mentioned, a lot of this traditional econometric is basically modeled on formal economy. informal economy is big in india and so that's one big difference the other big difference is that india is not a very credit driven society it's a very savings driven uh, driven society people in india you know use credit only to buy basically consumer durables which is a small portion of overall consumption so therefore i think if rates go up it's going to put some pressure on indian consumption but not a whole lot so these are the differences that you should be mindful when you are picking up your em allocation in general yeah and, and india was always a big commodity importer uh very interesting we'll see how commodities go they were uh the, the lower oil prices and now helping them uh be interesting to do gorav thank you for coming to Wharton and coming on behind the markets. Thanks, Chair. It's my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Chris took on the sound engineer board today. Uh, our producer Patty Hall. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. You can catch us on our podcast. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132, and our podcast producer Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.